Anderson. Hits it in the air to right. Back at the wall, and the White Sox win it. Sox win. Welcome back. This is the Feeling Soxy podcast, the Clint Klaus Show, as hosted by me, Clint Klaus, bringing you a another fantastic episode, a loaded show, probably one of the longer shows that we have had since the inception of the podcast. But this is a big episode. It is episode 50. We are 50 episodes into the Feeling Soxy podcast, and I have to say that uh, it's pretty amazing that I got to 50 episodes. I would have, especially with the way that this season has gone. I mean, you, I would have, you would have thought that I would have quit the podcast like two weeks ago when they lost that series to the Kansas city Royals. But on this show, we were talking heavy college football. We have my classmate, Jared Kittleson coming on and we we're going to preview the Notre Dame football season, and, of course, the current state of college football. But first, we have to start with our Chicago White Sox. The Felix Soxy podcast always starts off with any White Sox-related news before we get off to anything else. And obviously, the big story coming out of the White Sox this week is, obviously, Tony LaRusa is out indefinitely with a medical condition. Many people are saying it's his heart. He is going to go back home to Arizona at the Mayo Clinic, and his doctors are going to take a look at him. So Miguel Cairo will be the acting manager while Larusa is out. And first, I have to say, uh, my thoughts and prayers are with Tony Larusa. I hope that he's all right. I mean, obviously, with this podcast format, he's not necessarily enemy number one, but. He's obviously, this has been a tough season. And obviously, you know, when you think about the amount of stress that it's put on me, I mean, you can only imagine what it's done to Tony La Russa. I mean, you practically think that the White Sox this year almost practically killed Tony La Russa. But he is going to be out indefinitely. Hopefully he is back in the sidelines. But, you know, we you never know. Some Some say that this might be, well, not really say, but a lot of people's ears are percolating up that this could potentially be like this, like a soft landing for Tony LaRussa that at the end of the year, they're going to say, well, LaRussa is going to get moved to a senior advisor role. And he's all, they're going to say, well, he, you know, his medical, you know, medically he's not cleared to manage. So we don't really know which direction is going to happen. We know that Miguel Cairo is the acting manager for the time being. So who knows how long Tony LaRussa is going to be out. He could be out for the rest of the year. He could be back in a week. I mean, you, we really just don't know. I mean, obviously, we hope that he gets better because, you know, nobody really wants to, you know, even though we have been critical of him and the season has been an utter disaster, you obviously don't wish any harm on anybody. This has obviously been a stressful season as much as, you know, you've heard me criticize Tony LaRusso, kind of go after him and say that he shouldn't be managing. But at the same time, you know, we obviously don't want anything bad to happen to anybody here at the podcast. So the feeling Soxy podcast has Tony La Russa in their thoughts and prayers. And clearly the white Sox did too, because this series was a better offensive performance in what we could say in some time. I mean, I didn't even discuss the last series where they got swept by the diamondbacks, not even a talking point moving forward. As we enter September, this is September 1st. 
And now all of these games have mattered. These games have mattered for the last couple of weeks. But obviously, one way that you get back right into the race of the American League Central is you have to win series. You have to win games. And what the White Sox did is they won, took two out of three from the Kansas City Royals after dropping game one, nine to seven off of three home runs. And then they were able to win game two, four to two. And this one just going final seven to one. About a half hour ago, they finished off the Kansas City Royals. We won't see those damn Royals anymore. You know, they were they were a thorn in our side. I mean, they actually played very well against us. I mean, there, there's no way or any excuse that the White Sox should be playing at the level of the Kansas City Royals. They should be beating them nine times out of ten. And when you take two out of three, I mean, that's expected. I mean, this is what I've been saying about this team. This team should be taking series and one way that you get back into the pennant race is you start winning series and you take two out of three against the Royals. You have the twins coming into town for a big three game set, and hopefully we will get a sweep of them, but let's get into all these games. So obviously Tuesday's game started off a little weird because of the announcement that Tony LaRusso wasn't go wasn't going to manage the game. And then it was announced next the next day that he was going to be out and definitely less than 45 minutes before first pitch. I mean, obviously that's, you know, everybody is obviously a little bit stunned. Everybody obviously hopes Tony LaRusso is all right. But the way that the White Sox performed in that first game, I mean, Lucas Giolito again, like he has just, I, I can't think of a more disappointing player this year than Lucas Giolito. I know people will say, well, Yoan Mankata has been a disappointment. Yasmani Grandal fell off, fell completely off the face of the earth. But this year alone, I can't think of a more bigger disappointment than Lucas Giolito. I mean, I've said it time and time again on this podcast. I've lost my control on Lucas Giolito. I've been in favor of getting rid of him. But that's only because, you know, that's just the frustrations of me being a fan. You know, sometimes the frustrations boil over. and But Giolito hasn't been good this year. There have been a ton of times where the White Sox would need a win and he will just come out and just come out flat. I, you know, we've been wondering what has been going on with him. Like where, where is the Lucas Giolito of the past three years and not the 2018 one that has been shown throughout this entire seat through the majority of this season. That has been a complete disaster. He went on Scott Merkin. He declared his season was already a failure. And I don't, I don't know if that's really the best message to send out really writing to the main White Sox beat writer that you view your season as a failure. And then later he said, well, I feel more confident. I really like where I am. And then he proceeded to give up two home runs to Nick Prado, who was hitting 189 at the time and had a career best day with two home runs and five RBIs. Obviously it was not the best of games. The White Sox gave up a ton of home runs. The Royals scored seven times. In the seven in the nine innings, the Royal scored in seven of those innings. So really hard to forge a comeback or really kind of fight your way back into games when you give up runs in seven of the nine innings that you are competing in. And the White Sox did come back in this game. I mean, Gavin Sheets had himself a hell of a game. He had five RBIs, a three run homer and a two run homer. It, I should also point out that he is the first White Sox player all year to have a multi-home run game inside of guaranteed rate field. I mean, you heard that right. First time all year that a White Sox player has hit multiple home runs in a game at home. That really goes to show you just how bad this powder outage has been for this baseball team. 
And clearly it has affected the way that the offense has gone because for the most part, I mean, they don't even slug anymore. They don't even hit extra base hits. So the White Sox lost that game 97. Aloy Jimenez ended up going deep. I mean, but back to Lucas Giolito, you cannot, I mean, Giolito has like fallen like completely off the face of the earth. I don't know who fell off the face of the earth more, him or Yasmani Grandal, who, I mean, Mr. Hits has as many home runs and rehab starts than he does at the actual major league level. But I digress. No need to take any shots at Yasmani Grandal. So he lost that first game, and then before the second game, this it was made that Tony La Russa was not going to return. He was going to be out indefinitely. He returned back to Arizona that we had mentioned earlier, so Miguel Cairo then took over. And you had a really reliable start from Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn has really been good, has been a lot better as of late. I mean, he obviously started off when he came back off of the injured list. Things looked a little bit rough. I mean, a lot of people were saying that he was washed, that he was done. But, I mean, he obviously just needed to get a little, needed to get his feet wet. That was the phrase I was trying to go. He needed to get his feet wet. And, and when you look at his last couple of starts, I mean, he's given up only one run. He's given up two runs. Actually, I'm just going to pull up his recent. So this is Lance Lynn's last four starts. So Lance Lynn has been very, very good as of late as we look at his last five starts. So, he lost 4-2 to the Kansas City Royals, six, six innings, four earned runs, two home runs. Against the Tigers, six innings, two runs, seven strikeouts. Against the Guardians, five and two-thirds, five hits, one run, and six strikeouts. Against the Orioles, six innings, one earned run, and eight strikeouts. And then his recent performance yesterday, seven innings, eight strikeouts, and one run. Lance Lynn has been on a really good run of success. I mean, this is the Lance Lynn that we have known for the last year and a half. I mean, Lance Lynn has obviously had his struggles this year, but it looks like that Lance Lynn has started to turn the corner, which is a good sign because the White Sox are going to need all of their starting pitchers to start rising up to the occasion. Yes, even you, Lucas Giolito. But I think that with the way that Lance Lynn has started to turn, I mean, we'll we'll get into the Johnny Cueto today, but another John, another fantastic Johnny Cueto performance today. But, I mean, this is exactly what you were looking for out of Lance Lynn when you expected him to come back. Now, obviously, he's had some rough patches, but I think that was more of just trying to get innings under his belt and get him more comfortable. And now it looks like that Lance Lynn is fully back, which is big news for a team that is fighting to get back into the American League Central. And then as we get to this game, so Lance Lynn only gave up the one home run to Bobby Witt Jr., who is going to be a really good player going forward. But the White Sox were able to persevere in this one. Elvis Andrews hit his first home run with the White Sox. But an inning before, it was A.J. Pollock who hit his ninth home run off the season that was able to tie the game. They were able to get one more RBI from Elvis Andrews and then Jose Abreu as they were able to to get two more runs in the seventh inning, Liam Hendricks held it down for his 29th save as they were able to win that game four to two and put and puts them under two games under 500. So obviously a lot of people are, you know, going to be speculating of, you know, win one for Tony, like, you know, the win one for the Gipper, the White Sox need to start winning these games for Tony La Russa. And obviously it got off to the to a good start. 
And now we get into today's game. We'll give you a little bit of a recap. So Johnny Cueto went five in the third. He had five strikeouts. Another fantastic performance by Johnny Cueto. Obviously, his last start, it was a huge rebound. His last start was a not really his best of starts, probably his worst start since joining the White Sox. But this one, I mean, I have to first start off by saying that I don't know who calls games for YouTube because this game... This game wasn't on NBC Sports Chicago today. So I decided to listen in on the YouTube TV people, and it is probably the worst broadcast that I think I could ever even imagine. Like, it wasn't really all inspiring. Like, they were trying to be, like, the announcer, the broadcasters were trying to be funny. It also didn't help that one of them was Yonder Alonzo, who was famously the White Sox DH for two months, three years ago. So, I mean, that was quite the little thing that started pissing me off. And then, you know, they talked to Vinny Pasquantino, who wasn't playing. He's like, you know, we're hungry. We're greedy. We're greedy for wins. Well, clearly they weren't greedy for more runs because after they did that interview with him and they scored the one run, the White Sox then opened up the can of whoop-ass on him. So, Vinny Pasquantino, are you still greedy? Are you still greedy for victories? Or are you just greedy to score more runs? Because guess what? Your team ain't doing that against Johnny Cueto, you stupid son of a bitch. As the White Sox were able to rebound, Elvis Andrews, who, again, we mentioned him earlier. I mean, Elvis Andrews has been very good. I mean, his glove at shortstop has been fairly reliable. So, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a a better job well done than with Tim Anderson being out. I mean, Elvis Andrews has done a very nice job of filling in the role. And he, and he drove in the first run to tie the game. And then Andrew Vaughn hit his 15th home run. His 15th home run which now officially leads the team. I mean, Andrew Vaughn, we could talk about how he his improvement of this season. We've been talking about it a lot. And then they were able to get another home run from A.J. Pollock. I mean, back-to-back games, A.J. Pollock hitting a home run. So Pollock, it looks like that he is on one of his little hot streaks. And outside of that, the White Sox were winning that game 7-1, taking two out of three from the Kansas City Royals. So now the takeaway from this series is, you know, the most recent run of play hasn't been good. I mean, obviously, with the last before winning two games in a row, had lost 10 out of the last 12, including a five game losing streak. Things have not really been good with the White Sox throughout the past week or so. I mean, from when I did the podcast a week ago, when it looked like that they were going to take two out of three from the Baltimore Orioles, and then it obviously just completely collapsed. I, I think it's, it took them five games to maybe rebound from that, or obviously, Tony LaRusa dying. Well, not he's not really dying. I shouldn't say that, but his medical conditions really kind of maybe woke this team up that like, hey, we have been performing so bad this year and inconsistent that we are damn near killing our manager. I mean, forget the fans. I mean, the fans are obviously going to survive. I mean, we're still going to be here by the time the season ends. We will still be here barring some sort of crazy, unimaginable, you know, freak death i mean we will still be here talking about the white Sox. obviously we hope that tony Larusa is all right and i will close by this white Sox can win win one for tony Larusa. if this is not going to be the spark that ignites this team that their manager pretty similar to what happened in major league two when lou brown had a heart attack and that was out for the rest of the year i mean you just hope that this team just finds some sort of spark i mean because it's september and these games 
Every game matters now. From here on out, you have to win out. Well, you don't have to win every game, but you have to win a good majority of these games. You have to get back in this. I mean, it's not out by any stretch, even though it might have seemed like it's such. I mean, this is just where we are with this team. I mean, they win two games in a row. We think, hey, maybe maybe this is back in it. Maybe the Tony La Russa medical stuff is going to be the spark that this team needs. And then they go out and will lose some game in just an unbelievable fashion, whether they hit three home runs and give up like 10 or it's it's always something this year with this White Sox team that just causes them not to go on the sort of hot streak that they need to get back into the race. Obviously, the talent is there, but they have to start putting it together. I mean, they still they still have time, but time is definitely running out. And now we are going to preview the next series where they will be taking on the Minnesota Twins. They will have the Twins nine times in the month of September. So obviously, one way to gain ground and get back into the American League Central is beating the teams that are in front of you. And one of those teams that the White Sox have seemed to not really have much of a problem with is beating the Minnesota Twins this year. I've been saying all along how... I am not afraid of the Twins. I think the Twins are a very beatable team. I think they are not really that good. I mean, but obviously those are just my White Sox bias coming in and just telling you what what I want you to hear, which is we are a better team than the Minnesota Twins. I mean, that's it's just kind of fact at this point. But this is going to be a very tough three-game series when you factor in that is going to be Davis Martin against Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray has had good starts against the White Sox. He, uh, except for his last one, which was very bad after he took a line drive. I believe he took it off of his leg and he stayed in the game and proceeded to give up a grand slam to Luis Roberts. So we'll see what happens there. He pitches on Friday against Davis and Martin. And then Saturday, Dylan Cease against Tyler Maley, who the Twins acquired from the trade deadline. Dylan Cease will look to continue on his Fantastic season, probably one for the ages. And then Sunday, Lucas Giolito against Dylan Bundy. So, so previewing and taking a look at this upcoming three-game series. I mean, this is a huge series. This is a huge series. I mean, just like all of these games the rest of the way, these are this is a, a must-win series. It's a must-sweep series. This is a series that if the White Sox sweep this series, then... I might be fully committed and might be back, but who knows? Who knows? I mean, we have been we have been off the ledge. We've been talked off the ledge. We've been right on the ledge of officially canceling the season and trying to move on to football season. Not quite yet. I mean, this White Sox team just does not want to give in yet, and now they are going to win the American League Central for Tony La Russa, or so I hope. I mean, if, that, if Tony La Russa's medical doesn't provide the spark for this team, then... Honestly, I don't know what will. I really honestly don't know what will. So obviously a big three-game series, have to at least take two out of three. It's like I said at the beginning, you have to start winning series. You don't have to win every game, but you have to start taking two out of three, sweeping series. This is what you have to do to get back into the American League Central. I mean, you've dug yourself into this deep of a hole to where now you pretty much have to win almost every single game if you want to at least have can have dreams of playing in the postseason like it has just been a disastrous season that could still be revived 
but obviously it's not going to be easy. They dug themselves into this deep of a hole to where now, you know, we have to say, well, we'll take it game by game. Hey, they should take this series. I mean, obviously it's a must win series. This is a must win series. You have to win this series. You have to win out because after that, you're going to go on the road. You're going to play a very good Seattle Mariners team for three on the road. And then you have going to Oakland, a four game set in the house of whores in the Oakland Alameda Coliseum, a place where the white Sox just have just been absolutely brutal playing in brutal. I mean, I could think back on how many times that there have been so many weird games, even good white Sox teams have struggled in Oakland in the past. So a big, a big month for the Chicago White Sox. I mean, it's gut check time. It's either put up or shut up time. We've been saying this for months on end. Like you can't waste any more time. And now you have to go. You have to go. You have to start winning these series. So it's a good start by taking two out of three from the Kansas City Royals. But let's continue on and winning another series. Let's beat the Minnesota Twins. All right. So. Moving on from the White Sox, we are now going to transition into college football. This is the first week one of college football. I mean, I love college football. And as we have might have mentioned before in the podcast that this is a Notre Dame podcast. We are a Notre Dame football podcast. So I thought to myself, who, who would be a very good fit to help me preview the Notre Dame football season? going through the schedule, kind of do a breakdown and a little bit of a current state of college football with the changing landscape with the current game today. So we are now going to move into our very, the very first guest in the history of the feeling Soxy podcast history. He is Jared Kittleson Chaplin. He, as I mentioned earlier, he is a classmate of mine at the sports emphasis with the Illinois media school, the school of which that I graduated from and got my degree in radio television and broadcasting so I felt like he was a fellow Notre Dame fan and felt like what better idea than to have somebody else kind of bounce back and forth with discuss the Notre Dame football season so hopefully you guys like this interview I mean it was we went about 40 50 minutes talking about Notre Dame previewing the schedule going schedule by schedule and just shooting shooting the stuff so here it is. Here is a Notre Dame football preview with Jared Kittleson Chapin. Well, we are joined by a very special guest. He is the very first ever guest on the Feeling Soxy podcast. He's my classmate, Jared Kittleson, JKC. Jared, how are, how are we doing today? He's on to discuss many things going on in college football and give us a preview of the Notre Dame football season that is ahead of us. The first one of the Marcus Freeman era. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm first, first and foremost, I'm doing pretty, pretty well. Uh, it's been a nice little relaxing day, just kind of getting some stuff done around the apartment, you know, typical stuff before, no doubt. before really my life goes down the, down the, like, can I, can I use uh, some colorful language? On this yeah, podcast? you're, yeah, you're good. Okay. okay. Yeah. Before my life goes down the shitter for the next uh, uh, few months, probably up until January, <laughs> up until January. Yeah. Um, well, guess what? This is football season. So yes. we have you nice and set and ready to go. It's so, so obviously there are some things before we get into the uh, Notre Dame season itself. Mm. Obviously we have to discuss the, the changing face of college sports with USC and UCLA joining the big 10. We could be heading into 
maybe a, the the two super conferences in the mm-hmm. next couple of years or so. So does this really feel like, I think we might've discussed this in class, but does this really feel like that this is like the last couple of years of like a true college football season? Yeah. I, I, the, the changes on the horizon. I mean, there's, it, all signs are pointing that way. I think NIL was really the first, the first domino to fall and just kind of propelled this whole entire movement going forward. Um, college football and college basketball, they, they were making too much money to oh, yeah. not, to, to not have it be a factor in major decision-making, especially when you have two conferences that are head and shoulders above everybody else with the SEC and the yeah. Big 10 and kind of being the power brokers for everybody else across the country. Um, basically they're going to set the trend and yeah, you know, things are going to, things are going to maneuver that way. And if they wanted, if they wanted money to be infused in this and almost kind of like make an elitist version of college football, it was going to be because of those two and they were going to do it eventually. There's just too much money flying around. Oh yeah. Not to have it happen. Oh yeah. It's too, it's too much money. And plus the TV contracts make it that much easier for them. To it's, be able stu- it's, to- it's stupid the amount of money they make. I know it's it's ridiculous. I mean, college sports have just been making billions upon billions of dollars since 1984, when the Supreme Court ruled that the NCAA has no right to let teams control their TV contracts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely a changing face in college sports. It definitely has this sort of feel that we could be looking at the the two team super conferences in the next couple of years. But I mean, the still. I still feel like the joy of college football will still be there no matter yeah. what the, the super conferences, because yeah, I remember that'll never I, go away. Oh no. Cause I remember this was a big deal when Nebraska joined the big 10 and people were like, well, this could be the end of the big 12 and the big 12 has still, still been going around for mm. about like a decade now. Yeah, they were fine. Uh, and they've still, you know, they've still been a competitive and fun conference to watch, but oh, yeah. you just know that the, the TV revenue like just wasn't there. And that's why you see these teams making the, making the jump. And uh, it could be like a lot of athletic decision uh, decisions into here too. It's like, you know, we want to be considered for more playoff opportunities. We want to be more competitive, get access to better recruits. So I see Texas and Oklahoma making the jump USC, UCLA, but really it's about just getting a bigger cut of the pie, but no, like Nebraska leaving. It's not like Nebraska was necessarily like a tentpole team for the Big Twelve. I mean, you still had Oklahoma and Nebraska, or not Nebraska, but Texas and um, TCU was on the rise, and you saw some other schools. Just really, Oklahoma State was still relevant. Um, yeah, they were. They were going to be fine. They were going to be fine. But this is this is wholesale changes now. This isn't just one one team moving or Colorado leaving to go to the Pac-12 or anything like that. This is like your flagship teams leaving, and this is making a major yeah. shakeup. Yeah, I I could definitely see in like the next couple of years, like I know they were proposing a like a, the ACC and the big the Pac-12 and the Big 12, I think were going to like merge together. I could definitely see like those conferences as like the dust settles. I could see the three of those conferences sort of merging into one mm-hmm. whenever whenever the inevitable happens and the rest of because the, the you have the rest of these Pac-12 and Big 12 teams that are going to be floating around in the wind basically not knowing where, which, which way they're going to go. I mean, it's going to definitely present a, an interesting sort of, how can I describe it? Be a very interesting future for the next couple of years to see what the future of those programs eventually goes and who they end up competing against. Yeah. Well, the thing is too, it's like, 
we're not going to, we're not going to see like the complete changing of the landscape until the ACC kind of figures out how to get their shit together. Yeah. Because they yeah, signed... they're really the last domino. They're really well, the one that's kind of like right in the middle of what are they going to do? Well, cause they're, well, they're locked. They, so they signed like back in 2013, they signed like a, like a, like a TV rights deal with ESPN where, where it covered the whole entire ACC, but it locks them until the, yeah, the 2035, 2036 academic year. And I, I think the buyout on it is is massive, and it's something that the ACC doesn't want to pay. Uh, so, like, it's it, it, it's kind of they're they're kind of left in the yeah, dust it's, right it's now. The worst they, it's the worst TV deal of all time. It is it's the worst TV deal of all time. It is because they don't have the freedom to to bounce around or to to make these moves that a lot of these other teams are. If teams want to leave. It's like all right, well, you can't because you're kind of sucked into this contract for a while. So until they figure that out, yeah, it they're kind of screwed. Yeah, they're definitely screwed. And the ACC, where Notre Dame, of course, won the first part of the conference, even though they didn't have Mm -hmm. the two sides of the conference, they were an ACC championship participant. So now let's transition into the Notre Dame season heading into this year. So I don't know how you look at this Notre Dame team going into this year, but this sort of has a feel of a an obvious transition year, you know, new head coach, new quarterback, new defensive coordinator. This definitely feels like this is going to be a transition year for Notre Dame where you have a new quarterback. There's a lot of questions in terms of offensive playmakers. I wonder if you were viewing it the same way that I am, that this is going to be a transitional year for Notre Dame football. Yeah. It's going to be a rough year. I think you lost a lot on the offensive side of the ball that definitely was extremely effective. You know, I, I think, uh, I think we can mitigate the loss of, uh, I don't want to say we, sorry, but I think the loss of Jack Cohn is something that can be mitigated. Um, yeah. Veteran it, quarterback that definitely stepped right in and Tommy, Tommy Reese. And plus he was on a roll towards the second half of last season where it looked like at times that like he was like kind of iffy at times and he probably wasn't going to be the starter, but he really turned it around at the second half of last year. He did. Uh, you know, I see being in big 10 country. I watch a lot of big 10 football and I watch yeah. Jack home play at Wisconsin a lot. Like he's the very definition of just game manager and will occasionally take a chance here and there. He was just a steady quarterback. And for a one year grad transfer, I mean, he did exactly what you want him to do. Keep him competitive, yeah. keep you in the playoff hunt and get you to a new year's bowl kind of where, Notre Dame is kind of capped out right now until like, you know, some better stuff comes in. But yeah, you saw Tommy Reese work in the other two quarterbacks that were vying for the job this year and Tyler Buckner and Drew Pine. And we got good looks at him and they played effectively. And yes, yeah, so, yes, we did. Yeah. Then, and then, and them sticking with Buckner, I think was the right decision. Um, I think I agree. He, I think he's a little bit more dynamic offensively, but um, you know, he's not going to bring the same throwing prowess that Jack Cohn brings. Um, and you're losing a lot of skilled position players that um, were were effective. Uh, the the loss of Kyron Williams is going to be going to be felt. I think I I definitely think so. That is something that I have discussed on the podcast when I did a little preview when Buckner was named the starting quarterback. That they lost a lot on offense. Like when you look at their offensive playmakers, they're going to be starting Lorenzo Styles, who has only had 340 44 career catches. And Brandon Lindsley, who we have seen explode and have moments where he has a long touchdown run, but he only has 350 career receiving yards. Those are your two leading receivers going into the season. I know Jaden Thomas, when I looked at the depth chart, he was listed as a third wide receiver, 
still a lot of inexperience on the offensive side of the ball as compared to their first opponent when we go through their schedule of, you know, Ohio State. He had 345 yards in the Rose Bowl alone. So, mm. you know, that really goes to show you just how much the inexperience. I know they still have Michael Mayer and the yeah. interior of the offensive line is going to be really its strong point because that brings your most experience because now you're having to rotation start rotationing guys in. But I think this is going to be a year where the offensive playmakers, this is going to be a really a telling year of development from those guys, if whether they have that amount of playmaking, especially when they go up against better competition this year because they have a very tough schedule this year. Yeah, yes, they do. Go ahead. And – to all those people out there that that want to shit on Notre Dame's schedule making all oh, the fine time, one. It's, just, it, it, it's the it's the biggest misnomer in, in I, college football. It's like all right, well, we're not playing Furman for the and other schools of that same ilk. For the we're first not gonna we're not gonna play the year. Citadel a week before we play our rivals. Exactly, like it's like no, we're playing top. We're we're playing Division One competition from first game to last game, and. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You're not playing Mississippi State or you're not playing Vanderbilt, you know, those big puff up teams that everyone likes to talk about in the SEC. Uh, yes, like I understand. Like I understand, I understand that the top yeah. tier of the SEC in the Big Ten is probably going to be better than, you know, maybe better than Stanford now or maybe Cal now. I mean, Stanford, Stanford hasn't been good in, the, in like a couple of years. Yeah. Like it's, they've they've really fallen off as a program too. Like they were consistently winning ten, nine, ten games and winning the Pac-12. Now, I mean, they they're lucky to even win like seven games. I'm, I'm surprised David Shaw still has a job over there. It's kind of sad because I was really like, as much as I hate Sanford, I did enjoy watching him play football. I thought they were yeah. a fun team to watch over the Pac-12, where you know it's very much perceived as a soft conference, and they're just out there bully balling everybody. Oh yeah. Yeah. They def they were definitely mulling people. Like they were definitely the one team that, you know, during when Chip Kelly was at Oregon, they were like, definitely, they were like great kryptonite when they went up against those Oregon teams. Because yeah. Cause they made them play football. They made them play football. They were physical. They were in the trenches. And that was something that Notre Dame really kind of modeled itself after was modeling itself after Stanford so that they could compete with them and battle in the trenches, which was something that this program really struggled to do under Brian Kelly for the, first half of his tenure yeah like towards the end towards the end those offensive lines were getting tight they were getting yeah. solid yeah those offensive lines that Notre Dame has been producing the last several years I mean it's it's among the best and and uh, um, best among the country and now mm -hmm. they're bringing back Harry Hestad on the offensive line I feel like that their offensive line is definitely going to take that next step of right right where they were right before Hestad left for the Bears Mm -hmm. Well, he said it was the architect behind all the, yeah, this, he was. This, this, this gold rush of uh, Notre Dame offensive linemen that are getting just like rushed into the NFL. Mike McGlinchey, Quentin Nelson, uh, Ronnie Sam, Stanley. It, yes. Uh, Ronnie Stanley, Sam must like all these guys, like they were all disciples of Harry. Houston. They're all developed by Harry Houston. So having him back is going to be extremely crucial for Notre Dame in this bridge period where Marcus Freeman's taking over and they need some familiarity and, um, and, and solidifying those really important, those pieces like the offensive line. So having him back is going to help going like for now, just to kind yeah. of bring back some familiarity and, and, and grooming those offensive lines to be competitive because if they're going to, if they're going to stay, on the same trend that they are where they've yeah. been in the mix for 
a playoff appearance and, you know, competing for a national title, you need those offensive lines just to be able to, to somewhat withstand against the SEC defensive lines and some of those other defensive lines. Well, it, de- well, it definitely helps bringing back the guy who was just turning around, turning out first round picks year in and year out. I mean, that mm-hmm. definitely helps that you are bringing that guy back. So I want to kind of discuss with Marcus Freeman. So it, re- you know, first year as a Notre Dame head coach, he was highly sought after as a defensive coordinator, particularly mm-hmm after last year when there was unknown of what was going to happen with the program, especially when Brian Kelly left, was he going to go to LSU? Was he going to take over? I think they made the right call by making him the head coach. Cause I think it definitely brings Notre Dame has, um, how do I describe? They have a different feel to them. Whereas you kind of, whereas I think, I think we have a feeling of how this year is going to go, but the, the vibe around the team is definitely different from, when Marcus Freeman is there to what Brian Kelly was there. I I don't know if you feel the same way, but that's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Uh, Freeman's bringing swagger yeah. to the program. And it's something that you're kind of not necessarily used to being a fan of Notre Dame football and, and knowing what yeah, Notre Dame football is. Yeah, we're like used to the, to the button up guys who wear the, uh, the suits. Yeah. The suit like, and tie in their, in their team photo picture. Yeah. Like it's a definitely an elitist program. Like, you know, we like we like to. Or Notre Dame likes to give out the perception that, like, academically we're superior and we kill you at football too. Um, and it's tough to do, but like now with Freeman taking the reins over and having such an impact on recruiting, like he is, like Kelly could Brian Kelly helped recruit good talent. Yeah, to Notre Dame, he could definitely and, recruit the talent. Yeah, he never had a problem with it, but. Marcus Freeman's a guy who's now getting like top tier talent. Okay. Yeah. You're getting guys that are like uh difference maker type athletes to come to Notre Dame. Some athletes that you've never really see commit to Notre Dame because I mean, you, we're, we're already seeing it. I mean, they have the, they have a top five recruiting class going into next year. I mean, the 2023 class, you, you know, they're switching off back and forth between them and Alabama. So you can re- definitely tell the difference of the Freeman era than from Brian Kelly. Yeah, and it depends on who you go to for yeah. your for your for your recruiting rankings. Like I'm I'm a 24/7 sports guy, so I go to 24/7. I taught number 4. They're ahead of Oklahoma, Ohio State, LSU, Clemson, Miami, Florida. The only teams ahead of them are Georgia, Texas, and Alabama. And Alabama and Georgia and Texas like well oh, Georgia, yeah, you're talking about the two successful. teams that I mean, you're talking about two teams that competed in the college football playoff national championship. Yeah. And with Georgia's success recently, like when you, yeah. when you succeed, like you just become more attractive to other, uh, other groups of talent and being in a hotbed in the Southeast, you're going to get a ton of talent. Well, well yeah, Alabama's- you're also, you're also, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're also mm-hmm. like right in the middle of the South. I mean, the SEC is the top college conference in terms of talent that keeps turning in NFL talent mm-hmm. year in and year out. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Alabama has been the best college football program in the last decade plus, and Texas is always probably going to be hanging around the top five and recruiting because they're Texas. Everybody wants to go to Texas. It's from Texas. Yeah, Texas. You know? Texas is back every year by week three, yeah, and then exactly. and then and then in a month they'll they'll be irrelevant. They'll be back to five hundred. Yeah, yeah. Texas is always back. I'm 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 waiting to see them come back. It's like they yeah. they left they left think, for the pet they left for a pack I think of Texas cigs is waiting for Texas ago. to come back. <laughs> Texas <laughs> left for a pack of cigs eighteen years ago. Yeah, te- <laughs> yeah. Texas left with Mac Brown. Mm. Yeah, well, left with Mac Brown. He's starting to he's starting to make North Carolina something worthwhile. Yeah, 
Yeah, he's definitely turning around the North Carolina program. I mean, I will still never forget when Texas beat us. Texas beat Notre Dame first week of 2016. And, P- and I think it was Joe Tessitore. He was like, Texas is back. And I'm pretty sure they lost to Kansas later that year. So <laughs> they've lost to Kansas twice in like the last five years. <laughs> People are sleeping on Kansas football. Kansas football, man. They're coming back. Well, who, uh, back. who's their head coach now? He was uh, uh, he was the guy who was the head coach of the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Uh, oh God, I'm, I'm blank. I'm blank. Lance Leipold. Name. That's right, Lance Leipold. Yeah, guy won like like ten national championships at Whitewater. He's he's bringing that pedigree to Kansas. He's bringing he's bringing the D three swagger to to That's the right. Kansas. All right, so, so sticking with the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, obviously as. We want to get into the schedule as yeah. we get, as we go game by game. We're going to break down every game, what we think is going to happen. And Notre Dame, as we can, as they always do, they always have a tough schedule. And mm-hmm. this year is definitely no different. I have, I obviously think this, this year's schedule is a lot tougher than last year's schedule, mm-hmm. which by the time after the Cincinnati game, you could kind of see that Notre Dame wasn't going to play a good team for probably the rest of the year. Uh, but this year, right off the bat, they're facing probably in the tier under Alabama and Georgia, Ohio State, who's right underneath them in terms of stepping up in class. So Notre Dame is definitely stepping up in class for this upcoming game. And mm-hmm. I think I also believe this is the first time that Notre Dame and Ohio State are playing a regular season game since 1996. They yeah. obviously played in two bowl games. They obviously went the way of the Buckeyes because they whooped the Charlie Weiss team. And mm-hmm. I think Urban Meyer, one of Urban Meyer's best teams, the year after they won the playoff, demolished what I think was Brian Kelly's more talented teams, the 2015 Notre Dame team. That was the same year Jalen Smith tore, blew his leg up. Yeah, yeah, and changed, and basically changed the course of how some of these athletes go about participating in these big bowl games. Mm-hmm. So obviously Notre Dame's opening up as a 17-point underdog. This yep. seems like kind of an overwhelming game. I, obviously, whenever Notre Dame steps up in class, this usually goes one of two ways. They're either usually hanging tough in there and they end up losing in like the last second or they end up losing by two touchdowns, two or three touchdowns. So I'm going to ask this. Does Notre Dame have a shot at winning this game? They got a shot at being competitive. Um, there's too much transition offensively right now to have any kind of faith in that. And that's kind of saying something because when I'm, I, I look at Ohio state's defense across the board and they bring back Zach Harrison, who's a pretty good defensive end. Uh, and he was kind of following in that same, that, that same conveyor belt line of, you know, the Bosa brothers, Chase Young, and then Harrison was supposed to be kind of the next guy. Yeah. Um, and he's still sticking around for his senior year. So obviously something's like not totally there. Um, uh, I, I just, I don't think that they have, like, they don't have the firepower offensively right now, especially without having no. Avery Davis healthy. And I know Chris Tyree is a veteran back and he, he can help, uh, you know, make this, uh, yeah. offense a little bit more dynamic. And with the, with I think the he definitely of- adds, a, a, I'm sorry to interrupt, but he definitely adds a new element because he has been playing behind Kyron Williams. Yep. You know, I think this is, I think this is Chris Tyree's time. This is time for him to really step up and be the main cog in the line, uh, the big cog in the number one running back room. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm having troubles, trouble speaking today. <laughs> You're good, dude. You're good. No, like, there's talent, but I just don't think 
it's going to, because if it's going to be anything, they're going to. It's an experienced talent is really what it is. You're going, you're going up against a team in Ohio state that has big game experience. They are typically always in the conversation for competing for national championships every single year. You're stepping up in class in this one. And usually when Notre Dame does that, it's usually a close game. So I guess my next question is, are they going to cover the 17? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, like, I think it's going to be a tale of two halves where the first half, like, and this is, I feel like this is very typical of a lot of college football games, but I think it's, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it would be very typical of Ohio state games over the last couple of years where you see Ohio state go, go out to like a 42 to seven lead. And then Notre Dame will get like 21 points, get it, get it pretty close. But you know, Ohio state will then have like a late second touchdown to probably end the game. Well, not I mean, end the game, but really put it out of reach. I, I mean, we're probably looking at the best offense in the country. I mean, yeah. Ohio State's rolling out there. So I could see this game getting out of hand pretty quick in the second half. Because, I mean, like, first first week and with a lot of new players. I mean, like, yeah, it, jumping, it be, jumping right in. Jumping right in. I mean, Notre Dame's defense is bringing back a lot of seniors. I mean, you're bringing back a lot of senior leadership. But, I mean, even, even so, I mean, this team – uh, is returning most of the defensive starters that struggled against Oklahoma state in the Fiesta bowl last year. So, I mean, that definitely brings some concerns when you are going up against CJ Stroud and Jackson Smith and Joby, who absolutely lit up the Utah Utes secondary, yeah. which has been considerably good over the last couple of years. Oh, the defense is that's they're like one of the, like they're kind of like in the same mold as Stanford where they brought like hard hitting defense. Like you don't see that a lot from Pac-12 teams. No, you don't. They're usually, they're usually like the finesse throw the ball in the air. Well, now they're probably going to be going that way with Lincoln Riley going out there. We'll, we'll get into USC later when we mm-hmm. get to their game. So yeah. I think me and you both are on an agreement that this first game against Ohio state, it's going to be too much for Notre Dame to overcome. They have too much inexperience on the offensive side of the ball yeah. in terms of playmakers. And even though their defense is relatively experienced and will probably keep them in the game in the second and they half, they will be coached well too. Yeah, they will be coached well. I, it's it's just going to be too much to handle, especially going up against a very talented Ohio State team. But but if they do win this game, if they do win this game, I think they're going to the playoff. Hey, if they'll they go, win, oh, if they win. Go, if they win this game, 1,000%, they go to the uh, If they win this game, they won't lose another game for the rest of the year. So this is a make-or-break year, or this is a make-or-break game for whether it's going to be a 12-0 Notre Dame undefeated season where if Notre Dame does win this game, I mean, think about what that's going to do for the reputation of the Notre Dame football program. It boosts it, 1,000%. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're going to get put up in that same echelon with the Alabamas, the Georgias, and the Ohio States. I feel like it would really propel them. And I also think that Marcus Freeman would already have a better win than any win that Brian Kelly ever had. Like, what was Brian Kelly's biggest win? When he beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence? Mm-hmm. When he, yeah, when playing he, against a true freshman, DJ Uangalele. Yeah, or or like when they went to Oklahoma. Like, you, like I can't really think of any big-time Brian Kelly wins because they're not really – they, they haven't really been there. Like anytime they stepped up in class, they would get completely overwhelmed. So as much as we, me and you are both on an agreement that it's not going to happen, I could definitely see that if they do win this game, 
this would definitely springboard not only the program, but it'll springboard Marcus Freeman into a star. Oh, oh, oh are you kidding me? He'll be a media darling. Oh, uh, yeah. There's just so many X factors in play that'll, there's, yeah. that, that, that'll, that'll make him so endeared. And then the fact that, like, he just can coach your ears off, like, he's going to, yeah, he's going to be viewed as one of the better coaches in all of the country, bar none. There's going to be, I mean, not, it's crazy to think that there could be like a bigger program that'd be back, like knocking down his doors, try to get him from there. I mean, Notre Dame will do everything they can. To, like, oh, yeah. Notre, Dame, there, Notre but... Dame did basically everything they could to keep Marcus Freeman. Like, yeah, they did they everything re- they could to keep him. They really believe in him. They really yeah. believe in him. Yeah, I think I think that was one of the things that, um, you know, I kind of I kind of not really hinted it, but I kind of had this feeling of before Marcus Freeman took over that Brian Kelly was on expired time. And the next thing you know, boom, he's the new head coach at LSU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a southern accent out of nowhere too. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he must have <laughs> yeah he must have acquired that on his way down between South Bend and Baton Rouge. Moving on yeah. to week two, <laughs> moving on to week two, they are playing the Marshall Thundering Hood, Marshall Thundering Herd. So uh, we that's, are that's Marshall. Yeah, that's, that's that that would be a win. So we are Marshall. We are Notre Dame. Trumps. Yep. <laughs> Still a great movie. I think so. I'm going to ask this question. Does Notre Dame win this game by four touchdowns or five? Actually, well, yeah, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to throw Marshall some respect. Uh, yeah. say it's like a four touchdown game. All right. We'll, we'll give it to them. So the California golden bears, I don't really know a whole lot about the California golden bears. I'm pretty sure they're still your typical mediocre pack 12 Pac-12 team. I'm looking at the uh, matchup predictor. Notre Dame has a 94% chance of winning this game. That game will also be on Peacock. Ah, uh, yes. Good old-fashioned Peacock. They should better. Uh, yeah, they, they should take care of Cal pretty easily. Cal is only a, Cal yeah. is a five five one team, pretty middle of the road, and the Pac-12 middle of the road is nothing really to... Just by looking at the schedule right of some of these games, I mean, Notre Dame should definitely win these games, some of these games just by talent alone. And then you go into North Carolina the very yeah. next weekend. That's that's a potential a potential trap game. I think yep. they have a couple. I think they have a couple of trap games this year. Mm-hmm. You know, leading up to a couple of these big games. I would agree. Uh, North Carolina is always a team that will like. They have talent there. They do. And- Mac Brown has definitely turned the program around from mm-hmm. what. Even though I think Larry Fedora kind of had the program in a respectable spot to where. They're not like Duke football, but they're respectable. But Mac Brown has definitely taken them to another level. Yeah, of course. I mean, Mac Brown brings a championship caliber pedigree. And so he's like running that program like it should. Because North Carolina hey. could be a good program as, as long as they develop. Yeah, but they have they have the bo- the boosters and the resources too. Thousand percent. Um, but yeah, this could be yeah, this could be a trap game. Drake May is no slouch at quarterback. Uh he already played a game. I know they they played against Florida A and M, which is you know like a I think they're I think they're like a Division One A school or F F C S school if you want to call yeah, them. Yeah, they're that. like they're like a level below or like mm-hmm. just getting to FBS. Yeah, I mean they hung fifty six on them. Drake May had two hundred ninety four yards, five touchdowns, no picks. They uh, Marion ha- uh, Marion Hampton had one hundred and one yards on only fourteen carries. Like there's they're gonna be. They're going to be a talented team. Uh, they're going to be plucky. I still think Notre Dame takes it by, I'd probably say, like a touchdown or two. Yeah. Yeah. So, right now, we are looking at three and one after the month of September. They will have a bye week before a battle of another independent program coming in. But yes. 
but the battle, it'll be BYU against Notre Dame. BYU is coming into South Bend. First time that they have been to South Bend in almost 10 years. So does BYU have a chance in this one? I think I'm actually, I actually think that this is going to be an exciting one. It's just because, just because battle of independent programs, it's BYU and BYU. Like they usually have some players now. I'll be, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I'm not familiar at all with what they're going to be putting out in the field. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, we, we don't quite know what these teams are going to be throwing out there. We'll obviously know more as, like, the game the games start approaching. We'll definitely have more info of what what's going on. We'll have particular matchups. But this is more just by blind faith, just looking at the schedule of whether that's a win or a loss. I think – I think Notre Dame could win this one pretty easily too, actually. Um, BYU's, they, they lose taller, uh, Tyler Algier, their running back from last year, mm-hmm. who, was a, who was an NFL draft pick uh, in uh, this season. Um, he was definitely a main focal point of their offense. I mean, he had 1,600 yards for him last year and 23 touchdowns. That's a big hole to fill. And BYU is another one of those programs where they will have a pretty talented team at some point, but maybe they're kind of they're they're moving on from a transition from Zach Wilson and yeah. Tyler Algier and some of those and like Dax they're going Nomi. through a bit of a transition themselves. Yeah, so they're they're still turning people over and they're still developing some players. So as it stands right now, where we're catching them, or where Notre Dame's catching them, uh, they, in my honest opinion, I think Notre Dame should handle this one fairly easily as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think Notre Dame will handily win that one. We'll also have at that point, we'll also have a better, a better clear view of what Tyler Buckner looks like. All right. So the next three games, they play Stanford UNLV and Syracuse on the road into the carrier dome. So we'll just run through. What do you think? The Stanford this year, do they come back to prominence? Cause sometimes Stanford does beat Notre Dame in Notre Dame stadium. Yes, and that was one of the games I'm looking at to to really just keep your head on a swivel. For I was having a I was having a tough time trying to pick who had a, who I wanted to to come out of this one because I know the the proclivity of Stanford being that upset that little upset partner that little spoiler darling that they like to be. Um, I'm still going to take Notre Dame here. Uh, I I like them again, just talent for talent. Um, I mean, we'll, by this point, we'll see if Marcus Freeman's a good coach or not. Come yeah, I think. Seven. Oh, yeah. By this point, we will know what the program is. We will definitely know. So at that point, we will, it'll be five and one, six and one. Yeah. Depending on how they also win against these opponents will definitely be a deciding factor of whether they get back into the playoff. I think they'll yeah. beat UNLV rather easily. I think they'll beat Stanford pretty easily. I think Stanford's not really as good as they used to be. And Syracuse, I think that's a potential trap game. That's another one. Yeah, that that was that was one that I was looking at. That was a potential trap game that I was looking at was Notre Dame Syracuse, as Syracuse has played a lot better in terms of their program as of late. In terms of what Dino Babers has done to that program, really turning it over the past couple of years. So I mean, that's that's a game that Notre Dame should definitely be weary of. Two days before Halloween. Yes, and a week before a yeah. really big matchup. Yeah, uh, and then when against... you talk about Clemson, Clemson and Notre Dame, Clemson and Notre Dame. So Which I got Syracuse winning, by the way. Or I got, no, I got, I got Notre Dame beating Syracuse. Yeah, I, I, I do too. I think Notre Dame will win that game. So 
Clemson and Notre Dame. So you have Clemson coming back into town. I I do. I'm a little bit worried about this one because DJ Ungoli will probably be the starter. I am a little bit nervous if some of those players will have that motivating factor of we are not going to lose in Notre Dame Stadium again. So that is something that I'm a little bit nervous about. Yeah. Um, so I think Clemson offensively, if they can get stuff figured out, they're going to be one of the best teams in the country. Um, and I, I can realistically see them making a return back to the college football playoff and really competing for a title defensively. They are insane. They are a sick defensive team. Uh, they're bringing back a ton of studs. Uh, Brian Breesey should be back too. Um, who was a five-star recruit. I think he was a true freshman last year and was just playing his tail off. I think he got hurt uh, as the year went on. And uh, they're also losing – they also lost Brent Venables, their defensive coordinator. Yeah, he is. yeah he left at Oklahoma. I mean, that's mm-hmm. – that is going – that's a huge loss. So, I mean, at this point in time, who knows? I mean, both of these teams could be vying for a, a spot in the college football playoff. They they could. Uh, I think, like I said, if, if they can get it – if they can get something figured out um, – Clemson. I have Clemson taking a win in this one. Uh, I, I, I think geez. just co- I think just collectively what they're bringing back is going to be a little bit better than what Notre Dame's putting out there. Yeah. Not not until not until Marcus Freeman's team starts to form. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely a good point. I mean, we will definitely have a we'll definitely have a very clear view of what the team looks like when they go off of that. But right now, as it sits on August thirty first. That is going to be a very tough game. It's obviously going to be one of the few games I think they lose. I don't think they lose this game, though. Okay. I That's don't fair. think I do I don't think they lose this game. I do think Navy will give them a problem the very next week. <laughs> the the option true. offense. You you never I always love those option offense teams. I love that Navy just still runs like the 1930s uh triple option attack. I mean, that's something that Notre Dame has prepared for. It's something that they've been very successful with, but it's still something that will definitely wear on the football team. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, that Notre Dame has, fall, has has become very susceptible to at some points where they where they shouldn't have gotten beaten. It kind of depends yeah. on like... Sometimes, sometimes they kind of, they lower down to their competition. They step down to their competition where they play a team that plays them tough, but then when they step up in class, they also play them very tough. It's going to be a bounce back game though, because at least for me in my, in my schedule prediction, yeah. because when they take that loss to Clemson, they're just going to come out like a bunch of rage dogs and just absolutely put a hurting on the service Academy. Uh, and sorry they're, they're about that. Not, e- not even respecting the troops. Yeah. Respect the troops, Notre Dame. What's wrong with you? But respect uh, the troops as you beat them 59 to nothing. <laughs> uh, Notre Dame with the win coming off a of Clemson loss. They're going to, they're just going to hammer them. Uh, I mean, last year they didn't fall to it. They beat them thirty-four to six. I, I don't yeah. expect much different. Maybe oh, yeah. it was only maybe it was like they were only what four and eight last year. They're bad. Yeah, they were bad. And then you have Boston College coming to Notre Dame Stadium. Obviously, people are going to see this as a trap game, oh. due to what happened in nineteen ninety-three with the Boston College Notre Dame game, where Boston College snubbed Notre Dame out of the national championship. Yeah, that's not happening again. Boston College nope. stinks. You're yeah, getting crushed. That's not. They will get crushed. So now. All right, so we get to our last game, a game of the Notre Dame season that yeah. we hope still matters. Oh, it does. It, oh, yeah, it, it matters to us in terms of fans because we like the Golden Shillelagh, but they're going up against USC. 
And USC is one of the more popular teams to be a sleeper to get into the college football playoff. That obviously has more to do with having Lincoln Riley come over as the new head coach. Caleb Williams came over from Oklahoma. I mean, obviously Jordan Addison came over from Pittsburgh, the Bolitnikoff winner. Yeah. So we're looking at a potentially improved USC team that could be fighting for a playoff spot at this point in the season. Yeah. And hopefully Notre Dame is too, but by all likelihood, two losses will probably put them out of the conversation for being in the playoff. Yeah. Like USC. Um, so they've, uh, uh, they've made a killing in the transfer portal too. So the, the, like Lincoln Riley is going to be extremely magnetic for players to want to go there via transferring and recruiting. Um, a lot of their big time players that they're going to be putting out in the field this year are from the transfer pool, which is immediately going to boost USC right away. Um, it makes them more competitive and it gives USC more hope. Um, I think that the way that both these programs are transitioning right now is that we're bringing, we're like these mainstay names in college football are going to hopefully trend upward to make this game mean something again. Um, I think it will. I think it does with just the namesakes and and the news that have been surrounding them. Uh, yeah. Bring, bring in the names that you mentioned already, Caleb Williams, Jordan Addison. They're also bringing over Brendan Rice, Jerry Rice's son from Colorado. Oh my um, gosh. Mm-hmm. It was a decent receiver. I, I like. I, I've yeah. heard of him. I don't. I haven't really watched much of him. But like, you just. I'm. I'm looking. At well, him. yeah. I mean, I. I didn't even know the dude existed until you just mentioned him. Yeah. Yeah. The more you know. Um. It. I. I'm actually. I actually am nervous for this game. Um, yeah. I. I am too. Yeah. They have. Uh, also. Oh, Travis Die. Uh. I think. Oh my God. They got Travis Die too. Oh my God. Yeah. He transferred Dude. Morgan. He was a running back. Oh my gosh. Oh so, my gosh. This USC, could be a tough game. Yeah, this could be a tough game. I mean, potentially, depending on how this season goes. I mean, obviously, we'll look we look at the Clemson game a lot different, but this could be a game where if USC is at one loss, Notre Dame's at one loss, this could be the biggest USC Notre Dame game in probably what 15, 17 years since the Bush Bush game. Yeah, this could be a playoff decider. Yeah, this could definitely be a playoff decider. And that actually kind of gets me a little giddy because USC has just been a dumpster fire of a program the last decade plus, particularly the entire Brian Kelly era. They were just a garbage football program. Like I think 2011, they had a pretty good year. They had a good run with Lane Kevin, you know, Steve Sarkeesian had his little run with Sam Darnold, but for the most part, USC has been mainly dormant. Cause they ultimately a- kept Clay Helton around too long. Yeah, they kept they kept Clay Helton around too long. They were going they weren't they they were going to fire him and then brought him back, which mm-hmm. basically was just like, what are you guys doing? I remember they had Cliff Kingsbury come in as offensive coordinator before the Cardinals decided they were going to hire him. Yeah, still baffles me that he has a head coaching job in the NFL, but he took on, the job too and then yeah, left. <laughs> yeah, he took yeah he took the offensive coordinator job and then left. But that's another story for a different day. I mean, obviously this is a who knows? I mean. USC could be in a potentially different spot because they are going to be in a bit of a transition year as well. But I think anything Lincoln Riley gives them this year will definitely be USC fans will definitely take what they can get from whatever they can get from Lincoln Riley this year. Yeah. But this will definitely be a tough game for our fighting Irish. Yeah, it will be. Um, It's going to be, it, 
it's going to be a big transfer offense against a senior laden defense that Notre Dame is going to throw out there. Um, that you hope that you hope stays healthy. We hope that it stays healthy. Yeah, of course. Caleb Williams is, is the real deal, and that's who yeah, yeah I worry about the most. Um, <sighs> Notre Dame's taken one of these big games. I, I truly believe that. Yeah. And this is the one right now. Um, now, next year, we'll see how USC forms, especially with getting a full recruiting class and getting Lincoln there for, for you know, extended period of time. I think this is the year Notre Dame takes it again, but I think it's going to be a tighter contest. I think this is going to be like a one-score game. I yeah. really do. Yeah, I definitely agree. This will definitely be a one-score affair, but I have Notre Dame winning that game. I have Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame can win pretty much every game except for Ohio State. Maybe that's just my uh, bias, my Irish bias, just uh, blinding me with my <laughs> my my uh, my shamrock sunglasses are kind of in the way. But mm-hmm. realistically, uh, taking the shades off, I think realistically, ten to nine wins in Marcus Freeman's first year is realistic. I think ten and two is probably about where I think they'll end up. I think they will drop either the USC or Clemson game. They're not beating Ohio State, so. They're going to drop one of those two games. Either it's going to be Clemson or USC. Mm-hmm. I think that is my one prediction. I think 10 and two is a realistic shot for Notre Dame. I don't think, I don't think they're going to be in the playoff unless they beat Ohio state and go undefeated. Then at that point, then at that point they're a shoe in, but I think it's going to be a bit of a transition year and one that I think realistically, if they win 10 games or even nine games, I think that would be, would you consider that a good season if they just don't completely, don't completely crap the bet in these big games, but if like nine to 10 wins, would that, would that satisfy you for, for Marcus Freeman's first year? Oh, a thousand percent. Without a question. This is a, it's a, it's a big platform for a guy who was going to be the talk of the town, but didn't know if he was going to get a lot of head coaching opportunities quite yet, especially with like him just being such a prolific defensive coordinator and Kelly wanting to take him to go to LSU. And I think after that stint, had he gone there, had it gone well, then he would be a head coach somewhere else. But he got thrusted into the spotlight right away at Notre Mm -hmm. Dame, one of the most storied programs in the entire country and in college football history. If he can go out there, if he wins nine games, I'll be happy. I'm I'm a much more, I'm a pessimistic fan, which is not necessarily a super healthy thing, especially being into so many like teams I'm into, but all the teams I cheer for are kind of crap right now. Yeah. And yeah, I could, I, I definitely attest to that one. I mean, that's, that's why uh, we're not talking about the white Sox in this podcast today. Yeah. We don't need to, that horse is nope. dead and it's been nope. beaten quite, quite, <laughs> quite intensely. So we, we need to stay far away from that. But I, uh, if, if Freeman gets out there, especially after that little debacle in the year's game comes back, bounces back with a nine, 10 win season, I'll be happy with it. I want more, especially with the success that Brian Kelly's era brought, but, like he's just starting out. So he gets a little bit of, he gets a little bit of leeway. So I'm okay with that. So nine, 10 games is realistic. And I think it's what Notre Dame fans should be hoping for. Uh, well, yeah, that, I, I also side. think, I also think Notre Dame fans have kind of readjusted their expectations where it felt like that the expectations for Notre Dame were national championship or bust. Uh, but realistically with the way that college football has been the last decade, where you have Alabama, basically dominating, just being so dominant and whoever comes out of the SEC just being so dominant in this college football playoff era. I think Notre Dame fans have realistically adjusted their expectations of now 
the national championship or bust expectations are pretty much gone. Yeah. Yeah, they, they are. And I mean, it's not, it's not the eighties anymore. Like no, it's not. Isn't isn't there anymore. A lot of these guys aren't there. They're not, they're not what they were. And I think the, the fan base needs to temper expectations. You're not, we're not Alabama. We're not, we're not even LSU. You no, know, we're not. Like, we're not even Georgia. Not even Georgia. Uh, like it, it's a new era of college football. And, and I think if Notre Dame wants to stay relevant, they'll eventually start modeling themselves after the, after those teams and start to recruit yeah. the same way. And with NIL, it puts them in a better position because Notre Dame's got money. They got money. Yeah. yeah I mean, they're one out. of the top, they're one of the top college brands in the entire nation. They definitely have money. They also have an NIL deal. I believe Brady it's funded by Brady Quinn. I want to say, Oh, perfect. So like Notre Dame will find themselves in a position to be competitive and to be in the mix for a long time in the new landscape of college football. Um, We're just in a transitional period right now. And it's just the way it is. And nine wins for a brand new head coach. Who's never, who's never been a head coach before. That'd be a major W. Absolutely. And especially with the way he's recruiting and you can build off of that. That's, that's what you need to look forward to. Like, what do you do in 2023? That's important. Yeah, that's what that's what you need to look forward to. And if, and if this becomes a launching pad into more success coming up. Yes, yes, yes. Well, Jared, I want to thank you for joining me on the Feeling Soxy podcast. Yeah, dude. You also should feel very honored. You are the very first guest ever on the podcast. 50 thank episodes you. in and this is the first one. Uh, it's, a, it's a dubious distinction. I, and I and I thank you for it. I, <laughs> I, I might cry. Oh, oh, you don't have to cry. You don't have to cry. Thank you for, thank you for joining on, man. We'll talk in a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'd love to be back on if you'll have me. Oh, you definitely are always welcome on whenever you need to rant on about anything. This podcast will also be your format for getting off some random sports takes. If, if you so choose to. Well, I foresee myself coming back after every week of Notre Dame football. And, yes, uh, yes, and you we'll, will definitely be back. We will definitely be recapping all the games. We'll definitely have recaps of whatever happens with every game. We'll also go into preview. You'll definitely be back on the podcast. Beautiful. Love it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, anytime. And uh, love you guys. Bye. Bye. All right. Again, I want to thank Jared Kittleson Chapman for joining me and breaking down Notre Dame's upcoming season for 2022. The first of the Marcus Freeman era that will kick off on Saturday as they obviously are going to be going into Columbus, Ohio against one of the premier college football programs today. But obviously Notre Dame should not be taken lightly in this, even though I don't think Notre Dame is going to win this game. I just think that Ohio State's offensive talent will just be too much for Notre Dame to handle. But still a long season. Anything can happen in college sports. Again, I want to thank Jared Chapman for joining me, the very first guest, and he will probably be back on to recap some more Notre Dame football games as the season progresses. A little bit of Bears moves. Their final 53-man roster has been set as one of the more notables was that Tevin Jenkins made the team and will probably not be getting traded because there was speculation that there was some very hard feelings between the Chicago bears front office, the coaches and Tevin and Tevin, but it seems like that they have gotten that resolved. I mean, it obviously sounds like that he's not too happy about it, but 
for the most part, they are at least on terms of which they can tolerate each other. The final 53, as we mentioned, is set. And also, they acquired six players on waivers. They did. They had more waiver waiver claims than any other NFL team. And one of the more notable ones is acquiring offensive tackle Alex Leatherwood, who was a former first-round pick a season ago from the Oakland Raiders, who was unco- who was released and waived by the Oakland Raiders earlier today. The Raiders are in a bit of a transition they are with a new front office and head coach very similar to the Chicago Bears and it just seems like that Alex Leatherwood is going to need the change of scenery and I actually like this move because the Bears it, it was a move that doesn't cost them like how many times have we seen a Ryan Pace draft Ryan Pace trade where he's trading a fourth round draft pick where he's trading a third round draft pick he's trading two He's trading two third round picks to move up one slot. Like, you know, Ryan Pace would trade dra- would trade draft picks like how Les Need was. I mean, he was like, well, you know, Les Need's trading these draft picks, so I should too. Well, the difference is, is that Les Need and the Rams actually had money and a smart owner that committed to trying to build a winning football team. But I digress on that. So hopefully Leatherwood, he will probably be a swingman. They'll probably toss him around in guard and at the offensive line and at right tackle. It was a very nice pickup because, you know, you want to add some more offensive depth. Obviously, a thing concerning me going into the season with the Bears is the amount uh, is the wide receiver depth. I mean, they only had three active wide receivers for their first practice. So obviously, and the Keel Harry just got put on injured reserve. And, you know, the Keel Harry looked like he was having himself a pretty good uh, training camp before he sprayed before he broke his ankle and. And now it looks like that he is going to be out for the remainder of the season. So the receiving core definitely takes a hit. I mean, when you look at the Bears, this was definitely their weakest area when when you look at the roster as a whole. But I also think this. I know that some people have been very down about the Bears this year. I think that the Bears are going to be frisky. I think they're going to be a frisky team where they are going to cover. They are going to have some backdoor covers where – if they are in the plus, they are probably going to be covering that number. But with the new culture, I mean, they're disciplined. They look disciplined. They didn't beat themselves with too many fundamental errors. I mean, it obviously looks like that the coaching staff and the culture has definitely changed up there at Hallis Hall, or at least so we think. Obviously, their season kicks off in 10 days against the San Francisco 49ers. I will have another one of my classmates on next week as we will break down the Chicago Bears season. We will give you another season preview of that. So look out for that later next week. We will do another teammate of mine. We'll probably have Jared on. We will do a a roundtable discussion about the upcoming Chicago Bears season. So look out for that later next week. All right, this was the Feeling Soxy podcast. I know this was a little bit of a longer episode, the longest episode in the Feeling Soxy podcast history, but obviously when you have some interviews and it's not just me talking into a microphone, it definitely makes up a huge difference in terms of creating the conversation and getting some more listeners to the podcast. So thank you for listening to the Feeling Soxy Clint Klaus show, and as always, Let's go Irish, let's go White Sox, and pretty soon we'll be saying, Bear down, Chicago Bears. See you guys next week. We will obviously do a recap of the Twins series. We will do the Notre Dame recap, recap their first game, and 
obviously we'll get more into the bears so we'll see you guys on sunday thank you for listening